You're listening to Nearly Departed. If you've been enjoying the show, please throw us a rating and review. It's so important to independent podcasters. Chapter 3. The Soldier and the Haunted Chateau. The slant of light had shifted imperceptibly into autumn on George Street, as the sun moved further away from its spot on earth. Gwen and Oscar had taken to sliding around the ornate wooden floors in thick socks. Oscar, Gwen's friend and newly appointed live-in handyman, had discovered copper and brass polish and was tearing through the home, shining every doorknob and nozzle he could find. Gwen was going room by room decluttering, but each narrow closet took at least a day to fully unfurl. Every room in the cramped and creaky old Victorian home was like Mary Poppins's bag, stuffed impossibly with out-of-date gadgets, half-finished art projects, and a few cursed-looking objects. Gwen knew that Miss Kandinsky had done some work as a researcher of the psychical and paranormal decades before, and Gwen had a feeling there were case files or recordings from her investigations somewhere in the house. No luck finding them yet in the downstairs, but she did find strange little crocheted dolls wrapped in lace tucked in the corners of every closet, not to mention the incredibly heavy black shiny ball of some kind of stone or crystal behind a magazine basket in the living room. She didn't want to interrupt some giant crystal grid or protection, so she just dusted around these objects. The onion poked with iron nails every square inch of its surface in the top kitchen cupboard, though, Miss Kandinsky had instructed her to replace once a year, and to not, under any circumstances, touch the flesh of the onion after it had been used up. As for the letters, the boxes and boxes of letters from people detailing their experiences with the unexplained, Gwen tread very carefully. She had yet to receive another address to her, and as much as she wanted to tear all of Miss Kandinsky's open and read them all in a Tasmanian devil fury, she restrained herself to only opening one a week, and spent the next few days letting it roll over in her mind. She felt on some level that her role, and maybe Miss Kandinsky's role, was merely to witness them and pay the story's respect. Today, Gwen felt it was time for another. After dinner, she crept upstairs and opened one of the light blue boxes in the tower library. She closed her eyes and shuffled through them until her hands landed on a yellowed envelope with a red stamp in the upper right corner, printed on the envelope itself, which she had never seen. The address was written in a hand that reminded her of her grandparents's, and she could tell it was quite old. She gingerly opened the letter and unfolded the typewriter-written pages. January 18th, 1956, Santa Barbara, California. Dear Miss Kandinsky, My name is Daniel Bloom. The events that I will describe took place in the spring of 1916 in a convalescent home in Vatin, France. I had been transferred between several hospitals after I was unable to speak after being rocked by a shell. When my voice returned and my tremors had calmed enough to satisfy the doctors, I was sent to convalesce with other soldiers in a chateau owned by a British woman in the countryside of France. 
We slept in rooms that had once had heavy four-poster beds and writing desks and priceless chairs and odds and ends. But for us, they had been stripped away to an attic or basement I never saw to fit our creaky metal beds, creating small dormitories contrasting the silk wallpaper and high ceilings. There was even a butler wandering around. Most of us felt too foolish to ask anything of the man, though. A few of us tried to get him to relax and have a smoke with us, but he never did. My objectives when I arrived were to strengthen my legs, find something to occupy my hands, and reacquaint my mind with normalcy of any kind. The first two proved far easier than the last. Many of the other men had much more visible defects from shells or gas, and yet could laze around at the far tables for tea or chess for hours. But I, who appeared healthy, if very thin, I'm sure, seemed to have been locked in a vice of fear I'd never experienced that magnified the most basic experiences into a violent panic. Many of us had regular nightmares, but my nightmares followed me to the daylight in a way I tried hard to conceal. I don't know why I tried so hard. My shame was deep, but not really enforced by my peers. In retrospect, what we had experienced together was so unprecedented If I had only been able to cluck like a chicken, I'm sure everyone would have treated me with the same kindness. I may have even preferred that. I think it would have been much easier if I had simply lost my mind or become morose like some of them did. Instead, I was constantly agitated and alert. If you're wondering why I'm writing you, I hope you'll be patient enough to wait for my strange encounter. I don't think I've ever written out what happened to me at this time. Putting it all in order is very satisfying. I started by walking around the perimeter of the chateau with the arm of a nurse. Even if I could reach out my fingers and brush the exterior walls of the chateau, the vastness of the sky and fields beyond made my heart pound and my tremors reappear. I no longer felt that the world was a safe place, but I forced myself to make the trip around the chateau twice a day, mostly not to disappoint Amelia, my arm's constant companion. She was an extremely talkative English girl with the largest eyes, and I treasured her distraction and the safety she represented. We walked to strengthen my legs, which had weakened from my time in the hospitals. Amelia never questioned why I asked to only walk around the walls, but she must have understood my fear, because as the days went on, every so often, she would find excuses to pull me ever so slightly further and further away from my safe harbor to show me the new blooms of a plant, to see if walking on grass was easier than gravel. And in this unspoken way, I slowly became able to extend my walks into the overgrown garden behind the chateau. And eventually, painstakingly, I was able to walk aimlessly in the fields beyond it while Amelia stayed by my side and chatted endlessly. As if she could read my mind, though more likely simply the tremors of my hand. When we would push the outer bounds of my comfort and my heart began to pound, she would tell me her most intriguing or bawdiest stories from home or that she had once heard, which distracted me just enough to barely tolerate the grip of fear until eventually it began to loosen. It was this sort of walk with her that I first heard about the ghost. As we walked towards a distant stone gazebo-looking structure in the distance, she said, Did you know the chateau is haunted? A few nights ago, I was awoken late by one of the girls crying and getting into bed with Doris, who's right next to me. Now the upright thing to do 
she said, was to leave them be, but I've dedicated my life thus far to gossip and I'm not about to give up McKinney's pleasure in wartime. So I turned over and asked what the problem was and Doris tells me Maggie had seen a ghost. She'd been glancing into the men's rooms, making sure no one needed assistance before she turned in and she heard a man's crying. She double checks all the rooms, but no one is stirring and if they were, they weren't crying. So she follows the sound up into the darkness of the tower. It's been used as storage as far as we'd known. I had never been up there. But she walks up the round stone steps up the tower and the crying is getting louder. She opens the door to the tower room, which is filled with piled furniture and taken apart beds and paintings and all sorts of finery. And there's a man crouched on the ground in the dark corner, just weeping. She goes to walk towards him to comfort him, but she gets a really funny feeling and notices that he doesn't look like a soldier and his nightshirt is billowy, not like what the soldiers wear at all. So she's getting this awful feeling and she tries to back out without him noticing her. But he looks up and then he just dissolves into nothing. As she told me this, I found myself glancing back at the chateau's fairy tale tower behind us its rounded walls and its pointed cap. The tallest, narrow window interested me the most. I imagined someone watching us from it. Weeks went on, and as Amelia pulled me further and further outside of my bubble of terror, we found that our relationship had shifted in balance from caretaker and invalid to devoted confidants. Slowly, she allowed me beyond her professional, cheerful nurse demeanor, and I learned of her strained relationships with her younger sisters and her fear that she would be stuck taking care of her ailing father alone after the war. We took every meal together that we could, and though she was only 19 to my 20 and had spent all of her life in a tiny village, she never ran out of things to talk about and speculate upon, and I never ran out of interest and amusement. We clung to each other like lonely kids, which, at that time, we very much were. I hadn't realized it, but before then, I had kept a wall between myself and my friends growing up. I never revealed my crushes or my hopes. I was just trying to avoid humiliation for my brothers and my schoolmates. But being with Amelia was so different. She was so unquestioningly accepting and kind. I told her things I had never told anyone. One night around this time, I woke with profound half-awake dread that would happen every so often. It would be like waking up from a nightmare, but only your body is awake, and your mind still very much believes whatever imminent danger from the nightmare is real, even as you stared at your bedside lamp in a room full of sleeping men. And my mind is telling me I had to get out of a submarine. I've never been on a submarine. So I had a pounding headache and I was getting caught up in my sheets with this crazy notion of a submarine and I tried to slowly remind myself of my reality and get myself under control. I'm in a bed. The year is 1916. This is my book. This is my water glass. Everything is quiet. And in this half daze, as I'm blinking around the room, I see someone standing in the corner watching. It's white and misty, but appears to be a woman. I can't make sense of her. I think it might be Amelia or another nurse. I'm awful confused at this point, so I just close my eyes, and as I'm trying to calm my heart, I feel hands stroking my face. I'm coming further out of my days now, and the hands jostle me fully into awareness. I open my eyes, 
and no one is there. I hardly sleep the rest of the night. I can't tell if what I saw and felt was part of my nightmare or not. Something feeling real to me means very little at this point, as my body can make many fantasies feel real. Mary Parverin, the owner, was this wonderful, eccentric woman whose husband had been some prominent artist in the Belle Epoque in Paris. He had left her his family chateau, and she volunteered it practically immediately for convalescent use when the war broke out. I remember her sweeping through the rooms in her uniform of long silk pajamas and ballet shoes, changing bedsheets and interrogating the nurses about their future plans while supporting the soldiers into wheelchairs or crutches. She would argue valiantly with the men as we played cards, and she would beat us constantly and unrepentantly as she tried to teach us bridge. After a month or so of getting to know her and discussing art, I was no artist, but I had done some drawing. She told me that I was free to explore the chateau to find appealing vistas to draw. Every window had a different view of the incredible grounds, and she told me the third floor was mine for the taking. After Amelia left my side for her other duties that afternoon, I decided to take my sketchbook up the enormous stairs and up again for fresh views. Really, I was just curious about the place. Being an American, I had never been in any building older than a couple hundred years, let alone almost a thousand. I found myself in a large open room with an incredible view of the distant medieval church steeple. I walked to the window and pushed open the old panes to let the breeze into the room. I remember feeling incredibly calm and feeling for a moment that my life may actually go on from there. Hope. Down on the grounds, I saw Mary Parverin assemble a few nurses and men in rows. She was attempting to teach them a dance from her era, but the girls kept erupting into giggles. I saw Amelia striding across the green with a basket full of linens. I whistled, and she looked up at me and beamed, then mimicked Mary's prim dancing with her basket as a partner. She looked back up at me, and her face fell. I thought she must have seen a dark cloud in the distance or something. I decided to draw another day and headed downstairs to help Amelia hang laundry. When I caught up to her, she was surprisingly distant and asked what I had been up to. I told her as we hung the wet linens that Mary had let me explore to find a fine drawing prospect, as she called it, from any window I liked. Amelia continued in her cold, cordial tone and asked which nurse I had been up there with. I was confused, and I told her, no nurse, no one, I was there alone. She looked at me sharply and dropped the heavy sheet she had been untangling back into the basket. But who is the woman with you? The woman leaning on your arm, she asked. I looked at my arm and back of the chateau, trying to find the window I had been looking out of. I was alone, Amelia, there was no woman. She dropped her chilly disposition in an instant and gawked at me. But there was, clear as day. I saw her. Well, you know what that means, she said after she gained composure, and she threw her heavy damp sheet over my head. I laughed as I tried to get it off me. No, no, don't fight your destiny, my dear. There's arsenic in the kitchen. That should be at least quick. You have a girl to attend to, not of this life. I should have been terrified. This ghost woman, the spirit, had touched me. But there was one thing that seemed to keep the chill from my bones. 
I was falling in love. Weeks later, I feel a hand on my chest waking me in the night, but this time when I open my eyes, it's Amelia's slight frame above me. She's holding a lamp, and her narrow body is wrapped tightly in a simple blue robe. Her large blue eyes are wide with meaning, and she gestures for me to quickly follow her out of bed. None of my bunkmates seem to be awake, and if they were, they were good sports, so I pull on my own robe and pad out onto the cold floor with her. She says nothing as we walk into the blackness of the halls, but lightly pulls my hand along. My heart is pounding. I don't know what she has planned, and I'm terrified of Mary finding us or one of the sterner nurses. As we approach the parlor, a cavernous room filled with seats and a piano for our recreation, she stops me before the entrance, which at night is just an archway of deeper blackness than the large hall outside of it. She presses me against the wall outside the archway, puts a finger to her lips. We both peek our heads into the parlor from the large arch. I don't notice anything at first, but as my eyes adjust, I see that a few old chairs are tipped over. My eyes scan the room for any movement, but we see nothing. Amelia's attention is wrapped, so I just continue looking. Then, in the darkness, I see a chair slowly tip onto its side before it falls onto the ground, and a cane someone had left leaning against the wall clatters to the floor with it. I gasp, but Amelia presses her hand against my mouth to muffle me as we hear the unmistakable clink of keys and the footsteps of a dreaded senior nurse coming down the stairs behind us. We grab hold of each other and rush out of the front entrance into the chilly night. Neither of us can believe what we've seen, but the fear is eclipsed by the excitement of being together in secret. Amelia had snuck into the parlor earlier to retrieve a sweater she had left because the night was especially cold, but she heard furniture dragging and had seen the chairs topple before her eyes. Unable to hold the secret for even a moment alone, she had gone in search of me. She was too afraid to return to her room, or so she said, so we huddled together on a padded bench on the lawn of the chateau stifling our laughter until the sky turned lavender and we crept back to our beds. We tried to find the history of the chateau from the owner, Mary. She had been told a story of a medieval lord whose wife, while he was in battle, heard a false account that he had been killed and so she had thrown herself from the tower. The lord had apparently returned victorious a year later only to find her grave. It was hard for me to believe such a tale, but Amelia was enthralled and felt sure that that explained all of the ghosts, including my admirer. The war ended. We left the chateau, but we never left each other. We've lived in California now for 30 years and have been married for 37. I love her dearly. She kept nursing, although she's recently retired, and I work in conservation and as a writer for various nature magazines. I've never forgotten my time at the Chateau. When I remember it, though it was unequivocally the hardest of my life, it was also the time when I met Amelia, my angel of hope, my angel of fear, who redefined the word for me through her care and helped me see that ghosts, whether of the dead or of painful memories, lose their power when they are faced with curiosity, bravery, humor, and most importantly, love. Thank you for taking the time to read my story. 
Daniel Bloom. Gwen read and reread the letter to herself many times. In the dark, velvety master bedroom she had taken to sleeping in, with its four-poster bed and heavy tasseled curtains, the room could have been in a castle somewhere itself. She'd been reading it again that morning, too listless to start the day yet, but she slipped the typed thin pages back into their envelope and resolved not to read it again. It filled her with anguished longing. Though it would be terribly romantic and melancholy, she hoped she didn't end up as a lonely ghost, holding on to the arm of the living. She tried to snap out of it. Miss Kandinsky had lovers but no husband, and Gwen had the love of Oscar's friendship. Although how long before he met some guy and they disappeared from her life to start a ranch in New Mexico? She pushed the thought from her mind and decided to fully get out of bed. The doorbell rang faintly downstairs, so she pulled on her thick green robe over her nightgown, but didn't even attempt to tame her wispy pale curls, knowing full well she must have looked electrocuted. She opened the door bleary-eyed and looked up at an incredibly tall man in gigantic boots, carrying their poofy black Persian who was looking very grumpy. Wrinkles! You found her! The man looked haunted and pale, with shoulder-length straight brown hair tucked behind his ears and a few rather angry cat scratches on his cheek. His expressionless face barely changed as wrinkles slipped weightlessly from his arms into Gwen's. The man reminded Gwen of Frankenstein. She was enamored. Wrinkles had been on my roof, and she jumped on my head this morning, he said. You're so smart, Wrinkles. Did he break your fall? Gwen cooed. Wrinkles blinked slowly and licked her flat nose, looking up at the man smugly from Gwen's arms. I'm so sorry, sir. We're trying to make her an indoor cat, but she's incredibly sneaky and smart. I have band-aids and antiseptic if you want some. That's all right he said stiffly, and you can call me Paul. I'm Gwen. Do you at least like coffee, Paul? Almost exclusively, he said, taking her invitation and following her into the warm, creaky house. Thank you so much for listening to Nearly Departed. This is all written, produced, edited, uh, acted, performed by me, Katie Wiggins. If you want to support the show, like I said, always please rate and review. It's free, it's easy, and it's so helpful and it means so much to me. If you want some merch and a way to represent Nearly Departed, you follow the link in the Tee Public and see some of these awesome designs that I've done, very vintage inspired for Nearly Departed, as well as all the cool paranormal merch that I've done for my other podcast, Scary Stories from Camp Roanoke, which is like true ghost stories. Oh, okay. I think that's it. Thank you for holding on this long. And uh, you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, you bunch of sweet creeps. You're so smart, Wrinkles. Did he break your fall? Gwen cooed. (laughs) Ha 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 ha.